There is a phrase that was just muddied uh, during the election season, and it became very loaded, but it was a very influential phrase because a mentor spoke the phrase before it got so tainted. And the phrase that was ruined for me was a phrase called drain the swamp. Do you remember when this got ruined in the election? We're going to drain the swamp in Washington, except that um, if you're draining the swamp, all you're doing is really lowering the water level so that the, the analogy doesn't really m make sense. What made sense was this 80-some-year-old mentor of mine who had a career in military. I was having some troubles with some people that I was working with, some difficult people that I would have loved to have just evacuated from my life. And he said, David, you need to drain the swamp. Now, this guy had fought in a couple wars, and, and, and so, but he often spoke in metaphors, and I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. What does that mean? Because we were sort of having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, and he said, listen, the most fearful times in battle is when we didn't know where our enemy lied. If we knew there was a sniper in the hill and where the sniper was, it was okay because we knew how and where we needed to take cover. But the most scary times in the battlefield were when you didn't know where the enemy were. And he says, you know where your enemies lie. So it's okay for you to drain the swamp and let them remain. In other words, your goal shouldn't be to just discharge all the difficult people of your life and hope that it all gets rosy because it's only a matter of time before more difficult people will show up in our lives. And my point in telling you that is, is this, is that we want to know where our vulnerabilities, where our liabilities uh, exist. And when we get drained by work, by family crisis, when we get drained by politics, when we get drained by family crisis or human tragedy, or just the discouragement with people, the thing that happens is um, we have to ask the question, what's left? with our faith. In other words, what remnants of faith surface when all of life's circumstances drain us beyond our own sort of emotional reserves to stay charming? Human effort. And so life has a way, I think, of just exposing us. And sometimes it comes in the form of bankruptcy. Sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it comes in the form of success. Sometimes life exposes us because of prodigal children or because of prodigal parents. Life has a way of exposing us, and when it does, it always reveals what we believe is true about God. Sometimes I have been guilty of having a bigger faith in the circumstances of my life than in a faith in a Christ that transcends the circumstances. And there's always these kind of acid test moments, these sort of refining moments where I have to go back to the God and of, of, of yesterday, today, and forever and say, what is it I believe is actually true about God? Now, I wanted to start a series called God Who because I think we have a lot of antagonism. We have a lot of doubts. We have a lot of skeptical feelings about the nature and the character of God. And I, nor God, am threatened by the idea that we question God. But to be able to call on God, we have to be more aware of the nature and the character of who God is. So I wanted to do a series called God Who, and I wanted to base it on just two simple verses in Exodus chapter 34, 
where it's the only place in all of Scripture where God self-describes. God self-reveals. This is what God says about God. An epitaph, of, if it were, except that he's alive and well. And so we looked last week, it says, Lord, Lord, which is this phrase about Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh would be the name for God of reverence that talks about God is closer than our breath or as close as our last or our next breath. The word Elohim is the word we get in Genesis 1 and 2 for creator and judge. Now again, when we talk about judgment, that's a loaded word too because we tend to think that God's angry and that God's still angry. And the only palatable way uh, for God to deal with us is that he loves our son more than us, except that's not actually true. So how does God judge? Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 say it this way. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This phrase, this verse is quoted nine times in the Old Testament. Can I just say the Old Testament? You know, the one that you like to avoid? I talk to lots of Christians who go, I only like the, the God of the New Testament. I only like to read the New Testament because God is so angry and wrathful, except this is God's self-revealing, self-identifying statement about the kind of judge God is. And so we need to heal our picture of God. We need to heal or restore our theology of God based on who God's character and nature are so that we're not just vulnerable to life's circumstances. Are, are you with me on that? And so it says in verse six, and he passed in front of him. Now, interestingly, follow with me. And if you have your Bible, if you want to open the app or you want to jot some notes on, this is what's interesting. He didn't hover or stay. Moses was asking for help to lead God's stubborn people. In fact, he was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments with this great glory of the Lord, and the people of God are down there making a golden calf. I would not be very excited about leading those people, except those people are just like me people. Now, these are the people that God had just delivered out of slavery. There was this great deliverance. Immediately on the other side of the Red Sea, they start moaning and complaining about what they had to eat or what they had to drink. And oh, it was so better when we were slaves. Are you kidding me? Oppression is better than this? And so they thought they were going to... So now, here's Moses, like all of us, would just be going to God... I need to know that you're real. I need to know that you're there. I need to know that you're close. And so God says, you can't handle the fullness of my presence, but I'm going to give you a glimpse. And so it was a passing shot, right? He didn't stay. It's, and, and so the way I read that is, doesn't God often feel like a moving target? He does to me. Intimacy at times feels at a distance. Guidance feels elusive. And God passed in front of him, which is to say God remains present. Whether we feel it or believe it, God is present. So then it kind of inspires me to do the harder work of finding God even in the difficult circumstances. So God is seen in the spoken, 
in the written and in physical acts. And some are extraordinary and others feel rather ordinary. But in this instance, God simply grants Moses' request to see his glory. Friends, I pray about our gathering. I pray about your lives. I pray about our families. I pray about our friendships. I pray about our footprint, our spiritual footprint in Austin, that we could see and sense God's glory and that God's glory would be seen in us and through us. Now, here's what we need to understand. The basis for God's intervention is that God is actually compassionate and gracious. So let this kind of wash over you. I don't know if you grew up in a strong legalistic environment, if you grew up in the stronger emphasis on fear of the Lord as in condemning or going to hell, but let this wash over you. The basis for God's intervention in the Israelites' life was because God is compassionate and gracious. In Exodus chapter 3, what does God say? It says that God hears their misery. God hears the cry of the oppressed. God hears their, and sees their suffering. And so what does God do when people are marginalized? What does God do when they're needy? What does God do when they're oppressed? What does God do when they're desperate? He hears and sees the cries. And so God responds. Why? Not because the Israelites were necessarily deserving. Not that they were winsome and charming. God responds because of who God is, not who we are. God is compassionate and gracious. And when there are vulnerable among us, God responds. That's really significant, really formative in how we approach the judge and creator of the universe because he's near, as near as a breath, and he's judged, the way he judges is that he's compassionate and gracious. Super important for us to understand how we approach God and how we rely on God, how we can leverage God, but how God gets to be formed in our own hearts. So here's what's interesting about the word compassion. Compassion means to suffer with. Think about that for a second. God suffers with you in your sickness. God suffers with you in your loss. God even suffers with you in your insufferable selfishness, in your pride, in your greed, because God is compassionate and gracious regardless of how childish I am or how deserving I am. God remains compassionate and gracious. He chooses to suffer with me. He chooses to suffer with people who have fled their home and have called the United States their second home. God is always hearing the cry of the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the oppressed. So the first question that I might simply ask as you just consider this is, whose suffering have you seen? Whose suffering has stirred your heart? Whose suffering has interrupted your life to say, that's not right I need to do something about that. There is something in our observation of suffering that we 
and sometimes want to shake our fist and say, how could God allow that to happen? But I would simply ask the question, maybe the things you see and feel as unjust and unrighteous and repulsive are also the same feelings that God feels. And he's inviting you to participate in his salvation restoration story. And so uh, whose cries have you heard? God is compassionate and gracious so that we might become compassionate and gracious. And this, this is what it means to have a living faith. God sees and hears. So what does he say? Thoughts and prayers. That seems to be what happens right now. We get online, we're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Thoughts and prayers. Or God's like, hey, good luck with all that. Be warm, be filled. Good luck. Be gone. I don't know. No, God comes down. That's what God does. God's like, I see and I hear the cry of the press. God comes down. God's not apart. God's with. This is what God does. And that's what we would call solidarity. Solidarity is compassion. Why? Because compassion is when we suffer with. God looks at a broken world and he looks at injustice. He looks at oppression. He looks at poor. He looks at the marginalized and chooses to come alongside God stands with them, God stands with us, but so can we. And without compassion, nothing ever happens. Do you see how that works? Without compassion, nothing ever happens in me. I can have this faith that I say, I believe God's real, but if I never act in compassion as a living faith, I'm unaffected. And guess what? The world remains unaffected. This is why it's so needed for us to allow our hearts to be resensitized, to be willing to be inconvenienced, maybe even to make uncomfortable, so that God can stir up the sort of calluses of our heart, make supple that tired kind of, uh, kind of um, aged leather where it can be supple again. And so uh, I think this is part of how we're supposed to practice a living faith and work out our salvation is that things like being compassionate and gracious become really, really tangible. There's a picture in Hosea, uh, <clears throat> Hosea chapter 14. And if you're familiar with the story of Hosea, it's rather, it's rather painful. It's a story about uh, a prophet because the people of God are not deserving of God's love. In fact, they've broken covenant with God. They've just become lackadaisical. In fact, you know what happened with Israel? They had moderate success. They had won a few battles, but they had forgotten the ways of the Lord. And so they had become largely self-reliant. They had loud in other spiritual views and it had just sort of cooled their love for God. It wasn't that they were violently wrong or blatantly opposed. It was just sort of, oh, life got busy <laughs> and, and we got less needy. I could put food on my own table and no one was actually ruling over us. And so they got extremely complacent. And here God raises up Hosea and he's longing for, and here's the very literal metaphor that he plays out. He says, Hosea, I'm calling you to take this adulterous wife. And we don't know if she was a, a, a prostitute beforehand, but we know that after their marriage, she was involved with other men. And he uses this as the great poetic 
tragic illustration of how God is trying to court and restore. And he says, I want you to choose to, to pursue her, to love her without condition, to restore your marriage, just like I want to restore the covenant I have with you. This is God's love for his people. And so Israel is this picture of this unfaithful wife. And they get married and then he goes after her and he pays the debts that are owed to all her other suitors. And so the picture of Hosea is stay with me. Stop prostituting your house your heart out to all of these lesser loves. And, 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 and when, you, when your whole world leaves you, God's saying, you still have me. Depend on me. Draw your confidence in me. See what I see in you. <laughs> I know you entirely, and I love you anyway. This is the picture of God in the Old Testament. This is the picture of a God who self-proclaims, I am compassionate and gracious, even towards broken covenant. Come, come back. Even though you can provide shelter for yourself and food on your come back to me, need me. I want you to see <laughs> how I see you. It's in this struggle of a better way that I think we're supposed to see God. Maybe the other picture that I was thinking about was the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you grew up in the church, you understood that Sodom and Gomorrah was one of the most wicked places. If you're familiar with Abraham's story with Lot and his son and the, all this kind of bargaining with God to somehow save this sinful, sinful city. And, and really what we know of Sodom and Gomorrah is their sexual wickedness. The idea that they were just this most perverted people. But do you know why Sodom was, and, and Gomorrah were actually destroyed? I mean, their sexual perversion was, was legendary, but that wasn't the reason. In, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, even though they were known for their sexual sin, they had wealth, they had arrogance, um, and abundant needs, but they didn't meet the needs. Verse 49 says it this way. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. In other words, they were lazy. They did not help the poor and needy. You know what it means to be compassionate as God is compassionate? To suffer with. If you want faith to actually be impactful, if you want faith to be transformational, it requires us to step further into God's story and to somehow identify with those who are suffering. Now, you could say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling feeling too busy. I'm struggling with my kids. I'm struggling with aging parents. I get it. I get it. That's all about, you know what? Compassion fatigue is a very real thing, right? I mean, you can see so many needs. The point isn't to get drawn into every need. The point isn't to respond to every single need or opportunity. The point is, is that we begin to understand what God has called us into. See, we can't prevent suicide bombings. We can't prevent chemical warfare. We can't prevent um, school shootings. But we should have something that actually lights our fire. There needs to be something with us as the people of God that lights our fire. Because if we don't, it's a problem. If we call ourselves a Christian, there has to be something that stirs in us that we actually respond to so that we're not, or my family life, or my home isn't just the center of all that I'm doing and being occupied for. 
So what makes being, I think, compassionate and gracious most difficult isn't just uh, the idea that we're ignorant or that we're unconcerned or that I'm plainly selfish. I think the thing that makes being compassionate and gracious most difficult for me is that when I choose to show compassion and grace, it leaves me most vulnerable. I'm tired of living vulnerably. I'm tired of the disappointment I have with people. I'm tired of exposing myself to be more affected. And so I tend to retreat. I, I tend to withdraw because that feels too vulnerable. So now, consider how God feels with all of your wants and reactions. God chooses to make himself vulnerable because God chooses to be compassionate and gracious with us. What he invites us to do is to share in his story, to walk in solidarity with others. You know what solidarity looks like? Solidarity looks like an ESL teacher who's teaching a bunch of refugees by day and has a friend that's a photographer and spends the next year and a half, two years, interviewing, collecting stories, taking photographs, making an art, a magazine article of it, and then making a traveling gallery. Why? Because it's not just this is my day job and I get a little income from this and I have some teaching skills. It's just and Ashley choosing to advocate, to suffer with, to walk in solidarity with immigrants who are trying to call this home and, and having to overcome the huge hurdle of acceptance, of cost of living, of language, when they didn't want to leave their home in the first place. That's, that's compassion. That's choosing to suffer with. I feel their pain. You know what it is? Um, it's, it's Kathy and I saying, um, let's go to a, a conference. And we go to this fostering care conference uh, because, well, we think that this might be an issue. We don't know. But it's choosing to walk in and get a little bit more informed about maybe some of the plight, some of the needs, maybe even some of the opportunities, but certainly not having a lot of solutions. But then going into her neighborhood and then figuring out there's foster families that actually live in my neighborhood that I can actually maybe organize and provide some cleaning service for or put together a few meals for because that neighbor I knew had a cleaner house before they took in foster care kids who are extremely um, demanding. You know what the difference between a travel agent and a tour guide is? Both are wonderful, both are good. The difference between a travel agent and a tour guide is that one plans the trip for you and the other goes on the journey with you. There are times when God invites us to just become more aware. We need to be informed of the journey. Travel agent, you go to conferences, you read books, you watch the news, you hear friends' prayer requests, but then occasionally God actually points at us and he says, I want you to be the Sherpa. Lead the journey, go, walk in solidarity, Get your hands dirty. Let your heart be broken for all the right reasons. You want faith to be transformational? Trust me. Because I know what it means to have a broken heart.
walk in solidarity. This is what I think God is inviting us into. And this is the God that we can know. This is the God. And so maybe that's it, right? In the heartbreak, the loss, the disappointments that we hear, whether it's ours or whether it's with another, we're moved in such a way so that God can be more visible. I want to be moved <laughs> because I've been in church my entire life and it's very easy to play a religious card, to go through sort of uh, kind of a, a very sterilized Christianity and then we miss out on stepping into the reality of what care and response actually look like. Mission Hills was started with this dream of how could we, within the safety of community, walk into the story of other people's lives. To, to share in God's grace and God's compassion and recognize that we have our own needs, but part of my salvation is being able to invest in the needs of others. who are, Their needs are just simply different than my own. What lights your fire? Because if there's something that stirs in you in a significant way, it might be how God's inviting you further into God's story. And you're part of the salvation that God wants to, to work out. You're part of the deliverance. You're part of the healing. You're part of the redemption, even as you work out your own needs. So the journey of faith is simply just making sure Christ stays at the center and we orbit God, not let my life, uh, revol let God revolve around me. Can, can we just pray about that as we just close our time? Our Father in heaven, I, I just pause with the idea that you have created something in each of us that you want us to respond to. I pray for spiritual eyes to see another's need in a fresh way. I pray that you would help us enlist our kids as a part of that solution. I pray that their prayers could be occupied with the needs of others. I pray that our lives would be burdened with others. I pray that you would give us extraordinary and ordinary ways um, to be a part of your salvation on earth. But I pray that you would show us the fire. What, what lights the fire in us? Bring a name to it. Bring a family to mind. Bring a response. I pray that we could grow a community of faith around mission. I pray that we could grow a community of faith around obedience and, and choosing to make ourselves be vulnerable. May that be our testimony, that, that Mission Hills is known because they just are willing to make themselves, put themselves out there and make themselves vulnerable. Would you stir in our hearts, even as a busy people, even as an overwhelmed people, even with a thin margin people, and make us a generous people, a compassionate people, gracious, hospitable, Father, I pray that you would just help us to see and heal a picture of you in our lives. Would you restore a kind of healthy image of who you are? Not as this overbearing, cosmic, distant God, 
but as someone who's as near as a breath. And you want to breathe through us. So I pray that we would inhale your promises and exhale your love. I pray that we would inhale your written word and walk in obedience. Father, I pray that you would just linger in our time as we respond and worship and as we celebrate you. I pray for my friends that you would just continue to write and author a story of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.